Amen and amen. Thank you very much, Carrie. I want to direct your attention to a small book toward the end of the New Testament, the book of Jude. So if you would begin turning in your Bibles to the book of Jude. As you're turning there, I'm so thankful for the things that the Lord's doing. Uh, with Emma, still just a slow, steady week. As we say, if there's nothing going backwards, we're moving forwards. And so it's been a week like that, just slow and steady. But um, I'm just amazed, though, at how God is providing for things at, at the house as we are anticipating coming home with Emma around the 1st of December. Um, I've got to bring pictures at some point so you can see the great things God is doing because it is just amazing. And we are so thankful and overwhelmed by the generosity of prayers, of giving, of time, of food. Uh, God is just overwhelming us with his love through you. So thank you very, very much. As you can see, the book of Jude it's a very short letter. Charles Swindoll refers to it as a postcard in the New Testament. But it's a postcard that packs a lot of truth. Now I'm going to refer to the whole book this morning, but for the sake of having a text to anchor us, I want to look at the beginning of Jude and then at the end of it. So I draw your attention to verses 3 and 4. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I direct your attention toward the end to verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, as we, as we bow our heads before you, acknowledging your holiness, we ask this morning for your grace. Carrie has reminded us of your saving grace through the song she sang. Nathan has reminded us of the grace you give us in your word as he read from Psalm 119. Now, Father, I ask you for the grace to illuminate our thinking that we may understand and apply your word. Guide us this morning into truth. Jesus said, your word is truth. We ask this through Jesus and by the intercession of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
on October 31st of this year, an anniversary will be marked. It will be the 500th anniversary of the date that Martin Luther nailed 95 theses, 95 points, to the door of the Wittenberg Castle. Now he wrote those points out because not even then would any church set still for a sermon containing 95 points. Although I have been tempted. These were points that he listed out. Issues with the church at that time. When he hammered those points, hammered those nails into the door, the sound began a reverberation that has echoed to this day. Martin Luther was setting out to reform the church. There was only one church, the Catholic church at that time. And as Luther looked around, he noticed abuses that were happening, abuses that he became fearful would take the church away from the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many examples that could be given, but one that, that really drew Luther's ire was a, uh, an act that was done by a monk by the name of Johann Tetzel. He had begun the practice of selling what's called indulgences. An indulgence would do two things. First, when you gave money, it gave you an indulgence to sin a little bit more. So, hey, if you were going to Vegas, put an extra $20 in the cup, and you're covered was the thinking. But it also was a way of purchasing a person time out of purgatory. So you could give and buy yourself some grace to sin, and you could also give and buy a person that was in purgatory a little time off for good behavior. In fact, Tetzel had made up a little jingle that he would sing. When a coin in the cup rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Luther saw this and he was angry. He also saw that the church was teaching at that time that whether you had what he called an explicit faith, whether you came and you understood what was going on or not. He said the church taught that the very fact you were coming gave you grace. You didn't have to understand. You see, many people when they came to celebrate the Lord's Supper or Mass, they didn't understand what was being said. Because the, lead, the priest spoke in Latin. And the majority of the people did not speak Latin. In fact, when the priest would stand and he would say these words in Latin, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. You know what many people heard and believed the priest was saying? Hocus pocus, which is the root of that term. The idea that some change was taking place. Roman Catholic Orthodoxy couldn't be distinguished from magic or superstition. Luther saw these things and his heart was troubled because he saw the gospel of grace given through faith being eroded and wiped away in front of his eyes. So he issued a call for reformation. His voice joined the voice of other men such as John Huss, John Wycliffe, Theodore Beza, John Knox, John Calvin and others who are issuing a call for the church to return to the gospel and the sole authority of the Bible. Now the reason that I'm doing this brief history lesson is because we are in danger today of forgetting the history upon which we stand. 
You see, the structure of the Reformation was built on five solos, solas, or five things alone that are taught. And these things that they preached are still truths that serve as a foundation for us today, over 500 years later. Up on the screen, you'll see these. They begin to preach the five solas. The first one was this, sola scriptura, scripture alone as the authority of the church. They begin to teach, secondly, sola grace, or grace alone. The third thing they taught was this, faith alone brings salvation by grace alone. The fourth thing they preached is this, Christ alone is the only means of salvation. And the final thing, God's glory alone. Now over the next five weeks, beginning today, Nathan and I are going to be preaching a series where we dive into each of these. Taking a look at why they preach that and what that means to us today. And why we must be careful never to move away from these five solas, from these things alone. Because these truths are foundational for the church. These truths were so precious and so valuable that men and women chose to die rather than ignore these truths. Luther himself was tried as a heretic. He was arrested and brought to a place called Worms in Germany. He was brought into a hall. It was a dark hall. There were torches lit and the smoke was filling the room. It was hot and it was muggy. As he walked in, he noticed that on the table there was a pile of books. As he stood in front of the emperor, the prosecuting attorney said, Luther, these are your books. Do you deny that? Luther said, no. Those are the things I have written. He then asked upon pains of death, will you recant, take back what you have written, what you have said in these five things? Luther asked for a night to think about it. He came back the next day. And when he was asked, will you take these writings back? His response was, good God, what sort of evil and tyranny would I then be? Because I would be giving reign to those who would destroy Christianity. The emperor himself started to yell out, no, no. But Luther raised his voice even more and refused to recant. And he said the words that have been written down for posterity, quote, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. He was escorted out of the hall by armed guards. And in the night was snuck out of the castle before they could come to kill him. He took his stand upon the scripture. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God the B-I-B-L-E. Every generation, every church, 
and every person must decide what will be their authority for life. Every one of us at some point must make a decision as to what will be our guide and our map for how we are to live and what will lead us in the decisions that we must make. You see, the issue of Scripture alone is really an issue of authority. And this issue of authority is nothing new. The early church had to address this issue. Even within 30 to 40 years of the ascension of Jesus, the issue of authority continued to rear its head. And that's why we come to the book of Jude this morning. Jude was a half-brother of Jesus. His story is an amazing one. He went from being a relative of Jesus to being a, a child of God through belief in Jesus. Jude went from being an outsider to being an insider, a non-believer who came to believe. You see, as part of Jesus' family, we read in the Gospels, they didn't know what to make of Jesus. We read one time where Mary, Jesus' earthly mother, and Jesus' brothers come and they say, send Jesus out. He's, he's mad. They said he's crazy. He's insane. And isn't it amazing that this one who said Jesus was insane went to being one who said that Jesus is the sovereign Savior. Look at how he refers to himself. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. It's as if Jude wants to say, I'm not worthy to be considered a half-brother. I'm the brother of James who is a brother of Jesus. But he says, I'm his servant. And now Jude writes to the church, this church that is in grave danger of drifting away from the faith. You see, teachers have come in. He describes them in verse 4. Certain people have crept in. They have snuck in to the congregation unnoticed. And they're perverting the grace of God by what they are teaching. Verses 5 through 7, Jude shows the danger of drifting away. In these verses, he describes how judgment came upon the people who came out of the land of Egypt that didn't believe. He then describes in verse 6 the spiritual judgment that comes when you reject the authority of God. He says angels who did not stay in their own position of authority but left them are now under judgment. In verse 7 he uses the example of what happened when Sodom and Gomorrah rejected the authority of God and were judged when they chose immorality rather than following God. Jude makes the point that this drift away from the gospel is nothing, nothing to ignore. He says it's serious. If you begin to move away from the authority of God, where will you stand? You will face nothing but the judgment of God. And he says what is leading them to drift away are teachers who have come in. Verses 8 through 16, he describes the teachers. And one of the preliminary or one of the primary things that he says about these teachers is that they reject the authority of God. They reject spiritual authority. He uses an example in verse 9. An illustration from a book from the Apocrypha called The Assumption of Moses. Now I believe in verse 9 when he says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now he's using, that's not in the, the Bible. 
That's from a book outside the Bible. Jude is quoting it, I believe, as an illustration, just like I may share a quote from the Lord of the Rings. He's giving an illustration that says, this points out what happens, that even Michael the archangel had respect for other spiritual beings. He says these false teachers have no respect. Verse 16, if you will look at it, sums up those who are leading the church away from the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Verse 4, he describes them also as those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. These issues are not far from us. Every one of us and every human who has ever lived on this planet will seek some authority by which to live. You and I were made to look externally for some authority. Upon the screen you'll see Genesis chapter 2. This is verses 15 through 17. Now the thing I want you to keep in mind is this. This happened before Adam and Eve fell into sin. Now notice what it says here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is before the fall. Even before sin came into the world, man, humanity, was dependent upon God for the authority to know right from wrong. There has never been an internal compass within man saying, this is what you need to do. We were dependent upon God from the get-go, even before sin came into the world. But now that sin, due to rebellion, is in the world, the issues of authority have become that much more convoluted. Some people look to themselves as the sole authority for how to live. This is probably the, the loudest voice we hear in our culture saying, do what you feel like is right. Listen to your heart. Don't deny your desires. If your heart wants it, go for it. When you're faced with a moral issue, the world around us says, follow your heart. But the issue is, can we trust ourselves? Listening to our hearts is assuming that our heart is omniscient. That our heart knows all things. And the truth is, our heart is very limited and changes its desires. When I was a little boy, I spent most of the time in the summer at my Mamma Walker's house. My Uncle Clifford tended the farm, and it was an old school farm. In fact, when it came time to plow the garden, he would hook up a mule to a plow and walk behind it. And I can remember him telling me, showing, trying to show me how to do that. I was not controlling the mule. It was controlling me. I was hanging on for dear life. Farmer was teaching his son how to plow one day. And the son said, well, Dad, how can I make a straight furrow? His dad said, well, what I want you to do is to pick out an object on the far side of the field and just aim straight for that. 
The son started into work and plowing. The dad went away to do some other errands. When he came back, he saw the crookedest furrow he had ever seen. It was like a, a snake had slithered down this path. And he came to his son and said, what happened? I told you to pick out something and aim toward it. The son said, I did, dad. I picked out that cow. And every time it moved, I kept heading toward it. That's an illustration of what it is to follow our heart. The desires of our heart will change. It's not, a, it's not a stable guide to make moral judgments. It will change in what it longs for and desires. The heart is unreliable as a guide. For others, they don't look to their heart. They don't look to themselves. No, rather, they look to popular opinion. What way is, are the winds of popular opinion blowing today? When it comes to a guide for right and wrong, they look no further than what is trending on Facebook or Instagram or, or what's being said upon Twitter. And before a decision is made, this person checks to see what is the court of public opinion deciding today. But decisions that are made by opinion polls are dangerous. In 1879, Lieutenant George DeLong set out with a crew in hopes of claiming the North Pole for the United States. Now he was following maps, maps that had been published for a long time, particularly maps that were made by Dr. August Peterman. You see, the popular thought at that time was this, that when you sailed north, you would encounter ice, right? But after you got through the initial ice, there would be warm waters because the top of the globe was like encircled by ice, but it was like a, a, a divot that was dug out. And inside of it, there would be warm waters and warm air. You just had to get through the ice. It didn't take long for DeLong and his crew to realize that they had been duped. In September of 1879, the USS Jeanette became trapped in an ice pack and the crew had to abandon ship. They had followed the court of public opinion at that time and found that that court had rendered a wrong verdict. There was no warmth at the North Pole. Because of that, George DeLong and many members of his crew froze to death in the Arctic. Public opinion can be, and the majority of the time is, very wrong. Other people go a different way. They don't follow their heart. They don't look at public opinion. But what they do follow is this, tradition. What right and wrong has been determined by those who came before us. And many sins today are perpetuated in our society because we don't examine what has traditionally been held as right and wrong under the light of Scripture. A man by the name of Clarence Jordan was a Baptist preacher in the 1950s and 60s. He became very prominent in the move towards civil rights. He'd been invited to preach at a revival in South Carolina. When he walked out on the revival of this fairly large church, he was amazed that even though it was the 1950s in the Deep South, that it was a congregation that was integrated. There were blacks and whites worshiping together, and he was amazed by this. When the service was over, he made his way over to a, a preacher that it didn't take him long to figure out was, one, the pastor of the church, but also was not a very well-educated man. In fact, Clarence Jordan referred to him respectfully as the hillbilly preacher. Jordan looked at him and he said, 
How did it get this way? The hillbilly preacher said, what way? Integrated, Jordan said. Black and white together like this? Has this come about since the decision? What decision? You know, the Supreme Court decision of, of 1954 to integrate. The hillbilly preacher looked at him and said, what in the world's that got to do with Christians? He said this. He said, years ago the preacher died. Church couldn't get a new preacher. Nobody volunteered. So after about three months, I told the deacons that I'd be the preacher. They didn't have anybody else, so they let me preach. He said, I opened up the Bible and I put my finger down and I began to preach. And I'd laid my finger upon a verse in Galatians that said, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, for you are all in one in Jesus Christ. And I told the people that Jesus made everybody one. No matter where they came from or what their race or what their background, he made the people one. And when the service was over, them deacons called me in the back room and told me they didn't want to hear no more preaching like that. Clarence Jordan said, well, what'd you do then? The old hillbilly preacher said, well, I fired them deacons. We know if a deacon ain't going to deke and an elder ain't going to L, there's no point in keeping them around. You know what I mean? Jordan said, well, how come they didn't fire you? He said, well, they never hired me. He said, that's how we got to this. Black and white together. On the way home, Clarence Jordan was riding with a young man that was a professor at the University of South Carolina in the English department. Graduate of Yale University. PhD in literature. Jordan looked at this, this young professor and said, why do you go to that church? That man can't utter a statement without making a grammatical error. Jordan said he would never forget what this young, sophisticated member of the intelligentsia said to him. He said, sir, I go to that church because that man preaches the gospel. You see, the gospel transforms us. Looking at self is not a reliable guide for making decisions. Looking to society for right and wrong is not a good guide for making decisions on how to live. Tradition is a very poor guide often in knowing how to live, but it is the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that must be our guide. It is the Word of God that must be our authority. It is the Bible that must be our North Star. And that is why Jude, in verse 3, instructs us to fight, to contend for the faith, to guard it, to hold on to it. Now notice in verse 3, when he says to contend for the faith, that little word the is crucial here. He doesn't just say fight for faith. You see, the faith is not some subjective feeling here. The faith is a reference to doctrine, to specific teachings. He's saying you fight for the specific content that you have been taught. And notice the phrase that once for all was delivered to the saints. That has been given. Now this is the teaching that is contained within the New Testament. Now it's a very right question to ask. How can I say that? How can I make claims that the New Testament as well as the Old Testament is authoritative? It's a question that will be put to you in various ways. Especially those that are college students. 
Why do you believe the Bible? Just a bunch of myths that are put together. It's something that, that the people in power decided that they would recognize as authority to keep people repressed is the narrative that is often told. Well, this is the idea of canon. C-A-N-O-N. Canon is a measuring stick. Now, I've told the gentlemen that have been coming to, to add this addition to our house, the best thing that I can do to help them is to get out of the way. Because I know my limitations, but it fascinates me. And I couldn't help as I was preparing this, and I looked out there, is what would happen to this Emma's room if we had two carpenters out there, and one said, you know what I'm using as my guide to me? A foot is 18 inches. That's how I'm going to measure it. But the carpenter on the other side said, no, 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 no. To me, a foot is six inches. That's how I'm going to measure it. What would the house look like? It would not be good. You don't have a, you've got to have a standard measurement for things to be squared. That's the idea of canon. When we refer to the Bible as canon, we are saying it is the standard by which we measure truth. It is the standard for recognizing what is and is not God's Word. Now when it comes to the Old Testament canon, it was already in place by the time of Jesus. Upon the screen you'll see a passage from the Gospel of Luke 24. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. They say, as he's talking with them, he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses, that's the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The only thing that's not mentioned there is the writings, and that's mentioned in other places in the gospel. So even by the time of Jesus, it was recognized that the 39 books in the Old Testament were considered canon, the authoritative guide. But what about the New Testament? What about these 27 books that we hold to be authoritative? And especially today, where we will hear, or when you visit a bookstore and you look in the religious section, you'll see other Gospels that are there. The Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas. Why are these books considered authoritative? Well, the early church recognized the need for there to be a canon. There were teachers that were rising up. Teachers similar to what Jude mentions here. One was by the name of, of Marcion. Marcion taught that the Old Testament God was not worthy of worship. He held that Jesus Christ held up the one true God and was superior to the God of the Old Testament. So as Marcion taught, he said anything that smacks of the Old Testament is not to be viewed as authoritative. So for example, when the letter of James came to him, he said, why would you believe that? On the other end of the spectrum was a man by the name of Montanus. He's just one example. Montanus was a charismatic teacher who said that what he uttered actually came from God. He said, what I am speaking is truth. And the church said, no, 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 it's not. Because what you're saying is not square with what we have heard from the apostles. So it began to be recognized we needed a God. We needed a canon. In the year 367, a man by the name of Athanasius wrote a letter and in this letter is the first listing of the 27 books in the New Testament. Why these books? It's believed that there were four criteria they looked at. Upon the screen, you'll see them. 
Why were the 27 books of the New Testament written? It's believed this is why they were selected. First, what's called apostolicity. Each book was written by an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle. For example, we know that Matthew was an apostle of Jesus. So Matthew, as he wrote the gospel, it was recognized as authoritative. We also recognize that Luke was not one of the, the 12 disciples. But Luke was a close associate with Paul. And therefore, it was recognized because of that association, his writings were considered authoritative for the church. So was the book written by an apostle? An apostle is defined as one who saw Jesus and one who was commissioned by Jesus. Second thing was this, doctrinal consistency with oral apostolic teaching. You see, the apostles taught. They taught verbally. And people would retain what they taught. So as they read the letters, they would weigh out. How does this square with the preaching that we have heard? Is it consistent doctrinally? Third thing they looked at was universal acceptance in both sides of the empire. The Roman Empire was a huge, huge, stretching all the way from modern-day Iraq over to Spain and England. And they looked for consistency. There were some books that were highly debated. Revelation, for example, especially in the eastern side of the empire. But it wasn't that one part of the empire said, this book we give a thumbs up, and the other part said no, and they had a war over it. That did not happen. These books were accepted all throughout the empire. And the fourth thing is this. There was a self-authenticating nature. There was something that when you read it, your spirit moved within you to say, that's it. And understand, it wasn't just one of these that would sway the decision. It was all four taken together. Now, what is fascinating to me, and I recognize I'm a nerd, so this may not be fascinating to you, but I'm going to share with it nonetheless because I'm standing up here. <laughs> there was no church council convened to make this decision. Now, the reason that's important is this. There was no one group in power. When it came to questions about how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? Councils were called together at Nicaea and Constantinople to answer those doctrinal questions. But when it came to determining what is the New Testament, there was no council called. It developed, I believe, supernaturally so that no one could say man made the ultimate decision. No council had the final call. The church did not make the Bible. The Bible makes the church. And that is a crucial distinction. So how do we contend for the faith? How do we hold on to sola scriptura, scripture alone? Look over to verse 20. This is our guide. Now there is one command, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now that's the primary command. You want to contend for the faith? Keep yourself in the love of God. And this is why you will fight for that which you love. You love something, you will contend for it. He says you keep yourself in the love of God. So how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Look back into verse 20. Building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Spirit. You want to keep yourself in the love of God? You build yourself up in the faith. 
How do you build yourself up in the faith? By reading the Word. Faith is not just an intellectual exercise. It is a lifestyle of seeking to obey God. Think of it like this. A person on a ship could wax eloquent about the values of a life jacket. They could look at a life jacket, read the instructions and tell you how it was made, where it was made, how it keeps a, a large man buoyant and how it will save your life. You can have all that knowledge but unless when the time comes you put the life jacket on, that knowledge avails you nothing. So it is with the scripture. The scripture is not meant to be studied so that we can gain intellectual satisfaction. It is meant to be studied so that we may apply it to our lives and say, God, guide me into your truth that I may live a life. Jesus prayed, sanctify them, Lord. Set them apart. How? By your word. Your word is truth. Our witness in the world is often undermined by lack of desire to live out all of Scripture. The world around us sees that inconsistency. We speak about the sanctity of marriage, and rightly so. But when the world sees us speaking about the sanctity of marriage with one ethical concern about same-sex marriage, but at the same time seeing Christians not taking their marriage seriously or, or living together rampant among those who profess the faith, they look at that and they say, what gives? Why are you cherry-picking? We must seek to read the Scripture and to apply it consistently. Notice the second way to keep yourself in the love of God. Praying in the Holy Spirit. You know what will happen when you pray in the Holy Spirit? You'll be drawn to the Scripture. The Scripture seeks to illuminate the Holy Spirit that we may know Jesus. Up on the screen you'll see John 16, 13 through 14. Look at what Jesus says. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak of His own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the question comes, how does the Holy Spirit declare to us the things of Jesus? Is it purely subjective? Or could it be in the faith that once and for all was delivered to the saints, the Scripture? Praying in the Spirit is praying, utilizing the Scripture and being drawn to the Scripture. That is how we keep ourselves in the love of God. Because it is the Scripture that reminds us of God's love. The book of Jude reminds us of this. Notice a pattern here. Look in verse 1. To those who are called beloved in God. Mark that word beloved. Look down to verse 3. Beloved. Look over to verse 17. But you must remember, beloved. Look to verse 20. But you, beloved. In 25 verses, four times, Jude says, beloved. How do we know of the love of God? It's a theologian by the name of Karl Barth, brilliant man. He's lecturing in Germany, or he's from Germany, he was lecturing in Chicago. Had a press conference. 
They asked him one time, Dr. Bart, what is the most profound truth you've ever come across in your studies? Dr. Bart, this very learned man, said, Jesus loves me. This I know. How does he know that? For the Bible tells me so. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God that we contend for the faith? By being in the Word. By building ourselves up in the Word and praying in the Spirit. It's one thing to say, we believe in the Bible, but it's another thing to read it for the sake of application. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Heavenly Father, in your love, you have given us the Scripture. We recognize that all of creation testifies of your glory. All of creation testifies of your power. But Lord, it is only in your Word that we come to know of Jesus Christ. It is only in your Word that we come to understand your love for us. And it is only in your word that we come to understand about the cross and the resurrection. Father, forgive us for where we look to other authorities for our decisions. Lead us, Father, to seek you, to seek your word, to contend for the faith once for all delivered. And help us to be changed. Through Jesus our Lord we pray. Amen.